Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing our journey with Angela Davis and Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. I would like to ask people to please share the link to this episode on whichever social media platform that you may frequent the most often. I would like to remind you that every day at 8 o'clock a.m. we release a new episode of Rockford Reading Daily across all of the May 30th Alliance's social media and uh, audio platforms, including Facebook, YouTube, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcast. We also have The Social Construct of Leslie, which releases every Thursday at noon, and From, Rock From Rockford, which is a podcast series with myself and Ari Perez, which releases every Tuesday at noon. And we are going to continue to add more content and more podcast series and more voices to ensure that all angles of the issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice are being addressed by the May 30th Alliance. Now, it has been a couple of days since I've read Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis. The This is the first time in which I'm reading <clears throat> two books at the same time. I guess I should have said, or probably would have sounded better if I'd have said, this is the first time in which I'm reading two books simultaneously for the readings for this podcast series. I am currently reading They Can't Kill Us All and Freedom is a Constant Struggle. I'm reading They Can't Kill Us All from a inside location and I am reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle from an outside location. This podcast series, as I've said before on the episodes where I'm reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle, started out outside and as part of the protest that the May 30th Alliance has going on to raise awareness to police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice in Winnebago County outside of the City Hall in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, however, but to, to get some more stability, I began recording these podcast episodes inside somewhere, but I'm trying to get back to recording outside as well as having podcast episodes that are recorded inside. So going forward, there will be one book I'm recording outside reading and another book I'm recording inside reading. And then we'll alternate which books, the order of the books being released uh, on the podcast. And so one of the things that I've been doing these previously as well. And so one of the things I'll say right now is on my mind from a previously on Rockford Reading with freedom is a constant struggle. The connections between Palestine and Ferguson, the connections between local issues and global issues is being highlighted by Angela Davis. The concepts of intersectionality is, is being highlighted by Angela Davis. I've tried to do my best to articulate what that looks like for us in the May 30th Alliance and what that looks like for us in Rockford, Illinois. I also can't help but to think about the connections that freedom is a constant struggle and they can't kill us all have with each other. Both of them are very much rooted in the murder of Michael Brown and Ferguson and the pieces of a movement that came together after Michael Brown was murdered. For myself personally, I remember where I was at when Michael Brown was murdered. I remember the protest that, that went on, but I was not active. I was still sleeping my way through these moments in time, sleeping my way through the beginnings of these, this movement of my generation. And I think one of the things that is very important about speaking about Ferguson is that so many people woke up. That was so many people's waking call and organizations began to be put together. And 
ideologies began to spring from the murder of Michael Brown and the reaction and the organizing and mobilizing that went on afterwards. And I look at the murder of George Floyd in a very similar nature to the murder of Michael Brown and the fact that there was a lot of movement building that took place or pieces of pieces of a movement cornerstones of a movement were put in place after George Floyd was murdered. There were people who were asleep and unconscious to these issues that had their consciousness heightened and had their and were aroused from their sleep after George Floyd was murdered. And that was my personal experience. And when we talk about three people being killed every day in this country by the law enforcement, shot and killed every day, when we speak about that equaling up to over a thousand people a year, that means that every day there are different families and different pockets of group and different communities and different neighborhoods who are asleep to these issues or are unconscious to these issues that through somebody's life being taken away are suddenly jolted out of their sleep or suddenly have their consciousness heightened in a in a in a impactful and, and quick and a swift manner. And what we have to do when those moments arise and we are the people who are waking up or the people whose consciousness is being heightened is to begin to organize, is to begin to set things in place for the next set of people that are going to wake up to have an easier path to understanding these issues and understanding how intimately in, intertwined with our lives they are than we had. And to try to make some of these crooked paths that the the state and that businesses and corporations have made more straight. And I believe that the Rockford Reading Daily Series is part of us straightening that crooked path. It is part of us putting our our cornerstone or our piece into the the foundations of the movement against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, which I believe is the greatest movement and is the is the greatest movement of our generation and is the movement that will define generations to come and if there will be generations to come. With that being said, let's continue reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis. Frank. I think that's very interesting. I'm not sure how to put it, but do you think that when a group of people, and I mean the example of South Africa is telling as well, gets to high places in terms of politics or business, money then comes before blackness or the fact of being Native American? I was in Chile. Oh, did I read this already? Uh, I think I did read this. Okay, I found my spot. Sorry about that. Let's try this again. What can black, okay, Frank, what can black feminism and the black struggle offer to the Palestinian liberation movement? Angela, I don't know whether I would phrase the question in that way, because I think that solidarity always implies a kind of mutuality. Given the fact that in the U.S. we're already encouraged to assume that we have the best of everything, that U.S. exceptionalism puts us in a situation as activists to offer advice to people struggling all over the world, and I don't agree with that. I think we share our experiences. Just as I think the development of black feminism and women of color feminisms can offer ideas, experiences, analyses to Palestinians, so can black feminisms and women of color feminisms learn from the struggle of the Palestinian people and Palestinian feminists. So I think that the whole nation of intersectionality that has characterized the kind of feminisms we're talking about, that we cannot simply look at gender in isolation from race, from class, from sexuality, from nationality, from ability, 
from a whole range of other issues that Palestinians or people in the Palestinian struggle have given expression to that and have actually helped people in the U.S. imagine board, broader notions of intersectionality. Excuse me, I think I, I butchered that sentence towards the end. Frank, how has the Palestine struggle changed in the U.S. over the last several years? Angela, I feel some really important changes have occurred. For far too long, the issue of Palestinian freedom has been marginalized, so much so that many people in the U.S. have been progressive except for Palestine. And I take this from Rebecca Vilkemerson, who talks about PEPs, quote, progressives except Palestine, end quote. Now this is changing. The impact of the influence of Zionism, which used to be pervasive, is losing its force. On college campuses, all college and university campuses, Students for Justice in Palestine, SJP, has really grown in large numbers of people who are not necessarily Palestinian, who are not necessarily Arab or Muslim, have become active in the SJP groups. It is increasingly becoming, that is to say the issue of Palestine, is increasingly being incorporated into major social justice issues. And my own personal experiences has been that in the past I could always expect resistance or challenges when talking about Palestine, but now this is becoming increasingly acceptable. And I think this has to do with what is happening in Palestine itself. It has to do with the rise of Palestine solidarity movements all over the world, not just in the U.S. It has to do specifically in the U.S. with increasing numbers of people associated with black and Native American and Latino movements incorporating Palestine into the agenda. I think I spoke in the last interview about the tweets of Palestinian activists used to provide advice for protesters in Ferguson on how to deal with the tear gas so that direct connection that has been facilitated by social media has been very important as well. Frank, I was in Sevilla recently for a conference and Raheem Karwa from SJP UCLA, which you know well, was there with me. And I told him I was going to meet you and he had an interesting question for you in terms of student activism. He asked, what is the role of student activism today and how should students think about the relationship to the broader community and the movements that surround the campuses, particularly in a time when universities are becoming increasingly elite institutions. Angela, certainly. And historically, UCLA has been the center of a whole number of struggles that are linked to the community. I can mention my own struggle at UCLA, but I think that now students who challenge the borders of the university and the attempt to establish universities as a stronghold of neoliberal elitism, those challenges are extremely important. With the case of SJP, linking campuses to BDS all over the country has not only been the effect of strengthening the BDS movement, but has opened up possibilities for students to challenge prison privatization. And of course, on many of the campuses where there's been efforts to develop resolutions against corporations that profit from the occupation of Palestine, there have also been struggles for resolutions against companies that profit from prison privatization. So I think that these two are in many ways symbiotically connected, and that's one example of many. I think one of the ways of of communicating the the importance of intersectionality that I have found in my experiences in Rockford, Illinois is articulating to somebody how if they stand on a certain side of the aisle against one issue and they stand on that side because they think something is inhumane or they think something is unjust, that 
when it comes to an issue that they may not be as personally invested in, that they should still stand on the side of what is just and what is humane. And so when we sit here and we talk about how wrong it is for police departments to brutalize people, to violate people's rights, to falsely arrest people, to shoot to shoot people, to kill people, how wrong it is for people to profit off of the prison system, how how hypocritical it is for for some of the stances that politicians take and how hypocritical the what the America says they says that it stands for as opposed to what the reality is for a lot of black people and people of color in this country. Then when we begin to speak about issues like Palestine and we see the similarities with how the Palestinians are treated, when we see the similarities in the way that the police forces operate, when you see the similarities with the way that activists and protesters are repressed and suppressed and assaulted and imprisoned, it is incumbent upon you to continue to stand on the side of the people who are oppressed again in that, in that situation, you know? And so I think sometimes it can be as simple, at least as a starting point of being like apartheid exists in Palestine. Segregation is how we understand that to exist. So a form of segregation, a form of Jim Crow exists in Palestine. People who fight against that or struggle against that or speak out against that are actively imprisoned, are actively murdered, are actively assaulted and battered. So again, we have to stand against that issue because of that. And then as time passes, of course, you have to learn the history of places. You have to learn the politics of places. You have to to learn the landscape of what goes on in, in a place if you're going to speak about something. But I think that you can form a, a basis or a stance or a belief on something when the issue is about oppression, when the issue is about injustice, when the issue is about victimization, when the issue is about humaneness and humanity. And also one of the things Angela spoke about is the changing of the tide in people's perspective about Palestine. And I think that's why you have to be actively challenging the status quo and actively challenging people's value systems because through time, people just won't organically be like, okay, I feel differently, or we collectively feel differently about something, or our collective value systems have changed because five years have passed or 10 years have passed. They change because people, as time passes, struggle against what the current value system is, what the current stance is, what the current belief system is, what the current status quo is. And as they do that through time, that is what changes people's perspectives. And so I'm happy that so many people did struggle for Palestine and struggle about the issues of and being of and struggle to be in solidarity with Palestine because once I entered my struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice, there was something there were avenues set up for me to learn about Palestine. There were people who were involved in the struggle here in Rockford, Illinois, who had become informed about Palestine because of the the active role people have taken in getting the issue at the forefront of people's consciousness. Okay, let's continue reading. 
Frank, in terms of Palestine, again in the U.S., how are the narratives similar or different from the apartheid days? Angela, there are a lot of similarities, precisely because BDS has chosen to follow the route of the apartheid struggle toward a hopefully more global sense of solidarity by using the method of mass boycott. I guess what is different is the existence of a powerful Zionist lobby. Certainly there was a powerful apartheid lobby, but it did not have nearly the influence as the Zionist lobby, which can be seen in terms of black religion. Its tentacles reach into the black church. There have been direct efforts too, on the part of the state of Israel to recruit significant black figures. And I don't know whether we experienced that level of sophistication during the apartheid era. Certainly the Israeli state has learned from that movement. But at the same time, I think that we've never seen on a grassroots level the kind of affinity with the struggle in Palestine as we are witnessing today among activist groups. And my experience has been whereas once and my experience has been whereas once one would have expected perhaps restrained enthusiasm for the Palestinian struggle, now one can expect that audiences everywhere embrace the struggle. The American Studies Association passed an important resolution on Palestine solidarity. Recently had the opportunity to participate on a panel of the National Women's Studies Association, NWSA, conference. And the NWSA has never taken a position on Palestine due to Zionist influences, I would say. In a large plenary, in a large pl plenary gathering with perhaps 2,500 people during a panel on Palestine, someone asked whether we could take a floor vote, whether people there wanted the NWSA to take a strong position in support of BDS, and virtually everyone in the audience stood up. This was so unprecedented. There may have been 10 or 20 people sitting down, but the sustained applause, it was actually a very exciting to experience. These changes are crucial to bring about a bigger one. I think MESA as well, the Middle East Studies Association, has recently endorsed the BDS call. Frank, even Israeli academics said this was a major change. Angela, well, Let's remember that it was the Asian American Studies Association that first passed a resolution and then the American Studies Association that followed. And now, of course, Frank, Mesa and Angela and Critical Ethnic Studies Association, quite a number of academic organizations. Frank, so it's all great. But in your opinion, what could we do to strengthen the pro-justice movement even more in the U.S.? And the same question applies to the whole world, I think. Angela, well, I think that we constantly have to make connections so that when we are engaged in the struggle against racist violence in relation to Ferguson, Michael Brown, and New York, Eric Garner, we can't forget the connections with Palestine. So in many ways, I think we have to engage in an exercise of intersectionality, of always foregrounding those connections so that people remember that nothing happens in isolation, that when we see the police repressing protests in Ferguson, we also have to think about the Israeli police and the Israeli army repressing protests in occupied Palestine. Frank, we talked about the militarization of the police. You see it in Ferguson. You see it in Ferguson. You also see it in the West Bank in Gaza. You also see it in Athens and Greece right now. Police forces looking like, quote, robocops, end quote. The fact that this is a global struggle becomes more obvious when you make those connections. Angela, but they're shrewd, so we no longer see it in Ferguson because they have decided to make their militarization less visible. But even when we can't see it, we have to make the point. 
And I think that's perhaps even more important that people learn to see it through the efforts to render those military influences invisible. And I think I want to just make a statement about that that sentence Angela just said. A lot of times in my experience, it's not always a long paragraph or an elongated speech that sticks with me the most. Sometimes it's just a simple line. And just this simple line here that Angela says, but they're shrewd, so we no longer see it in Ferguson because they have decided to make their militarization less visible. But even when we can't see it, we have to make the point. I think that's perhaps even more important that people learn to see it through the efforts to render those military influences invisible. And I think that that can capture a lot of what it is that we need to actively be doing in Rockford, Illinois, and in Winnebago County at the point that we are right now in the struggle. And that is informing people on how to see the invisible manifestations of the issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, how to see past, how to be able to tell the difference between a narrative and the truth, how to be able to tell the difference between stigmatization and prejudice and criminalization and the truth, and how to tell the difference between the people who are oppressed and the oppressors, and how to be able to see racism even when it is not written out in the law, specifically in black and white, that it is racist, when it's the way that it is enacted that is racist, or it's the people that is who, who it's meant to target that is racist. So much of the issues that exist in our society right now are issues that are invisible to the eye. And because they're so invisible to the eye, people assign blame to the wrong parties all the time. And we usually do that in the form of blaming individuals for institutional evils. And so just being able to see through that veil and be able, being able to render that attempt to make something invisible null is so important. And, you know, when we talked about, I speak about the book Rise of the Warrior Cop and how it's subtitled Militarization of the America's Police Force. And in the book, he talks about the double-edged sword of the militarization of the police force is that it not only happens to in, in weaponry and in in what they wear and in the tactics, the things that you can see outwardly, but it also happens inwardly in their philosophy and in their ideology and in their policies and procedures. And one of them is easier to for them to hide and to get rid of. But the other one, once you see that other one, the ideology, the procedures, the, the invisible issue, that's the one that once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it can no longer be hidden from you. Frank. Talking about connections, do you, see, do you see a role for yourself in connecting anti-racist movements in the Arab world with black consciousness and liberation movements in the U.S.? Angela. Well, I don't know whether I would talk about a specific role for myself as an individual role, but certainly I would see myself participating in the efforts to make those connections, to render those connections more palpable and more visible. Oftentimes we learn from movements. That happens at the grassroots level, and we should be very careful not to assume that those insights belong to ourselves as individuals 
or at least as more visible figures. But we have to recognize that we have learned from those moments and we want to share those insights. Insights. That is the role I would see myself playing. Frank. Again, talking about black feminism, what positive developments are you seeing in black feminism in the United States? Angela. Well, the embracing of the cause of Palestinian solidarity is really important. Beverly Guy Scheftel, who is a very important figure in the development of black feminism, who teaches at Spelman College, which is one of the historically black educational institutions. Frank, Howard Zinn taught there. Angela, yes, he did. Alice Walker attended Spelman. It's a small women's college, but it is really important. And Beverly Guy Scheftel was a member of the same delegation that I joined to Palestine. It was an indigenous and feminist of color, scholar-activist delegation to Palestine. And Beverly Guy Scheftel was a very important figure who was so modest that she never claims any space for herself. But I would like to emphasize the importance of the role that she has played. Spelman College, which is a predominantly black institution, has an SJP chapter, which is the only SJP chapter on a major HBCU. And I think they're giving leadership to the other historically black colleges and universities. So I think we can hope to see a great deal in the future. Beverly has been really consistent and persistent in foregrounding the Palestinian struggle. Frank, have you seen the consolidation of feminism in your lifetime that has effectively changed both patriarchy and white privileged liberal feminism, if we can call it that? Angela, I think that movements, feminist movements, other movements are most powerful when they begin to affect the vision and perspective of those who do not necessarily associate themselves with those movements so that the radical feminisms or radical anti-racist feminisms are important in the sense that they have affected the way especially young people think about social justice struggles today. That we cannot assume that it is possible to be victorious in any anti-racist movement as long as we don't consider how gender figures in, how gender and sexuality and class and nationality figure into those struggles. It used to be the case that the struggles for freedom were seen to be male struggles. Freedom for black people was equivalent to freedom for the black man. And if one looks at Malcolm X and many other figures, you see this constantly. But now this is no longer possible. And I think that feminism is not an approach that is or should be embraced simply by women, but increasingly it has to be an approach embraced by people of all genders. Frank, in terms of change, what is the most significant change in black politics since the end of the civil rights movement? Is it related to black feminism as well? Angela. Well, I think the interconnectedness of anti-racist movements with gender is crucial, but we also need to do this with class, nationality, and ethnicity. I don't think that we can imagine black movements in the same way today as we once did. The assumption that black freedom was freedom for the black man created a certain kind of border around the black struggle which can no longer exist. So I think that the black radical tradition has to embrace the struggles against anti-Muslim racism, which is perhaps the most virulent form of racism today. It makes no sense to imagine eradicating anti-black racism without also eradicating anti-Muslim racism. Frank, can there be policing and imprisonment in the U.S. without racism? Angela, at this point, at this moment in the history of the U.S., I don't think that there can be policing without racism. I don't think that the criminal justice system can operate without racism which is to say that if we want to imagine the possibility of a society without racism, 
it has to be a society without prisons, without the kind of policing that we experience today. I think that different frameworks, perhaps restorative justice frameworks, need to be invoked in order to begin to imagine a society that is secure. I think that security is a main issue, but not the kind of security that is based on policing and incarceration. Perhaps transformative justice provides a framework for imagining a very different kind of security in the future. Frank, can there be policing and imprisonment in the U.S. without racism? Angela, oh, I just read that. I done did this twice this episode, haven't I? Okay, Frank, you've been an activist for decades. What keeps you going? Do you think we should remain optimistic about the future? Angela, well, I don't think we have any alternative other than remaining optimistic. Optimism is an absolute necessity, even if it's only optimism of the will, as Gramsci said, and pessimism of the intellect. What has kept me going has been the development of new modes of community. I don't know whether I would have survived had not movement survived, had not communities of resistance, communities of struggle survived. So whatever I'm doing, I always feel myself directly connected to those communities. And I think that this is an era where we have to encourage that sense of community, particularly at a time when neoliberalism attempts to force people to think of themselves only in individual terms and not in collective terms. It is in collectivities that we find reservoirs of hope and optimism. And then that brings us to the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four. Let's have a reflection and then we will wrap this episode up. The emphasis that Angela Davis put on collectivism towards the end of that chapter is very important and very impactful to me. And again, collectivism and intersectionality have been terms that we've repeated throughout this, this reading. And I think that there are certain terms and certain ideologies that can't be repeated enough, that can't be expounded upon enough, that can't be told from different perspectives enough. And I think, to me, intersectionality and collectivism go hand in hand with each other. And part of some of her answers to previous questions pointed out the things that feminism can add to the Palestinian struggle, the things that black feminism can add to the Palestinian struggle. And she expounded about things that they could add to each other and gain from each other. And I think that not only is that 100% true, it's also true within struggles that learning about the uniqueness of a black woman's struggle will add benefits to understanding my struggles as a black man, learning about the struggles of people who are uh, of uh, Latin descent, Latinos, Latinas, and the struggles that they uniquely have will add to the understanding of my struggle. And and it's because these things are so intertwined. If you're uh, somebody who maybe you're black, but you're rich and you learn about the struggles of people who are in poverty, since the masses of black people are in poverty, learning about those class struggles also adds to you as a black person struggling because you now understand what the masses of people who look like you go through. When you are, are black or a person of color, learning about what if I'm black, learning about what other people of color go through adds to my understanding and knowledge of my struggle because they're the, the roots of why we go through those things are intertwined with each other. Racism doesn't just manifest itself on one group of people. Uh, same thing, oppression, exploitation, these things, when they are inside of capitalism, 
they just they balloon and inflate and so they can't just affect one group of people or one set of people and so in order to defeat these things that collectively affect us and to in order to defeat these things that that are evils that n- naturally have intersectionality within them you know the capitalism and racism negatively impacts in an intersectional way automatically and so we have to be able to combat those things by being knowledgeable in the the realm of intersectionality and in the realm of collectivism so we're going to wrap this episode up here we will be back tomorrow to continue reading freedom is a constant struggle by angela davis and Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle against police, terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.